sure Mark can attest to this as well, more often than my pride would like that I feel like the worship does a better job at preaching than I'm going to do. So I'm tempted to just let you leave from here, uh, but we won't do that. Um, this morning, we are going to continue in our series of It Takes Practice to Be a Christian. And uh, the, a lot of what I'm going to share uh, with you today, first, let me back up. Like I said, they did such a good job. I'm all confused and uh, out of place. Welcome. And I want to say to those of you who maybe this is your first time uh, or first few times with us, if you haven't checked in at the welcome table, then you can go out those doors uh, after this service. Meet us at the guest center. Somebody will be there to greet you. Uh, we have a gift for you. And whether you plan to come back or you're unsure or whatever, we just want to get to know you a little bit, see how we can pray for you, and uh, also just give you that gift to thank you for being here today. Now, uh, this morning, uh, we've been going this summer, we've been going through this series, It Takes Practice to Be a Christian, and uh, it, it takes practice to be a Christian, that there are, there's a moment of salvation where we put our faith in Christ and uh, his, his work to uh, take away the, the guilt and the punishment of our sins, but I don't know about you, I didn't just accept Christ as my Savior and then get it all right. It takes practice to actually live as Christ lived. And so we've been looking at uh, many ways throughout this summer that we can practically uh, practice with one another living like Christ. And I think those battles that we sang about this morning, the way our, our world is kind of set up, we always, our battles are always huge and out there, and there's little that we can do about it. And one thing that Mark has, has done as we've gone through this series is try to take our attention from these big battles that are outsized and really out of our control and focus in 
at us? What are things that we can do with one another where we can practice living like Christ? And it might not feel like, you know, we're solving all the world's problems, but we are practicing becoming like Christ. And if we all do that, I do think that spreads out to the world. And so uh, last week, we looked at uh, it takes practice to live for others, that we are pulled in a direction that wants us to live for ourselves and to make sure that we're okay, we're taken care of, and everybody else is second to that. And while doing that, we looked uh, at Philippians chapter 2, and we saw something in there that I told you we would revisit this week, and I didn't lie to you. Uh, So if you want to turn to Philippians, I'll remind you of what that was. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. There, Paul said to the church in Philippi, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And so we spent a lot of time kind of looking at that doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But when we are to look out for the interest of others, clearly what Paul is saying here is that your interests aren't always the same as those who are around you. And so when that happens, you have probably experienced that it can lead to some tensions. And so as a a body of Christ, as a local church where we come together, we're supposed to partner together, how do we practice looking out for the interests of others and living through that tension? And so this morning, I want to look at that. How can we disagree well? How can we uh, have competing interests but still love one another and learn to look out for one another? And so I've titled the message this morning, Unity, Not Uniformity, because I think what we really want is uniformity. We want everyone to be like me. Well, you probably don't want everyone to be like me, but I want everyone to be like me. And if everybody was like me, then it would be easy, right? I would get along with all of you all of the time because I get along with myself almost all of the time. But that's actually not how life works. Not everyone is like me. Not everyone is like you. Nor would that actually be the utopia that I think or that we think it would be in our minds. Uh, I grew up playing sports and uh, uh, high school basketball. I loved high school basketball. And we, unfortunately, we never won the championship when I was there. I think they won the year I left. We're not going to read into that, what that means. Uh, But we did have a pretty good team while I was there. Um, And if everyone on that team was like me, we would have had not as good a team. Uh, And not, I'm not trying to have like false modesty and say I was bad. I played a role that I think was an important role for the team, which was to basically to stop the other team's best player, unless he was significantly taller than me. But I would guard the best player on the other team, and my goal was that I would have more points than him. And which was never a lot, I never scored a lot, but I wanted to shut down their best player. If that was our whole team, we'd have to try to win games like 10 to 8, and that just would never work. We needed the skill set of everyone on that team, and everyone needed to be different. There was a kid on the team, Ben, who was a great three-point shooter. 
If that's all we were and we weren't great at defense, then it, would, it probably would make for exciting games, but I don't know that we would win that many. And this is something that the Bible picks up on. Paul many times talks about the body of Christ and how each part of the body has a different role and every role is important. We can't say that one role is more important than another. We don't want uniformity. We don't want everyone to be the same. That shouldn't be our goal. That's not the goal of the New Testament writers. We want unity. And so how do we come together when our interests are different and oftentimes they are competing? There are plenty of tensions to go around. Um, uh, Last summer, a small group of us, I think it was about eight of us, went through this book called Winsome Conviction, Disagreeing Without Dividing the Church. And a lot of what we went over in the six weeks that we gathered, I'm going to be covering in just a few minutes this morning. Um, But I have two copies of this book, so if anybody wants a copy, you can come and get it after the service. But they're going to, in the book, they go through Romans 14, which is what we're going to do this morning. But there are so many things for us to disagree about. And the temptations within churches is for those disagreements to lead to division, to us dividing. Either actually we will leave, I'm not going to come here anymore because these people are crazy, they don't, or they think I'm crazy, we disagree about this issue, and so I'm gone. Or maybe we don't actually leave, but we kind of create our little patches of people who we all think the same. And so those people over there, they go to the second service. They're kind of crazy. We don't really associate with them because they think different. And so even if we're a part of the same church, we can still divide within the church. And again, plenty of tensions to go around. Um, Here are a few options that you can fight about. Uh, These are, are things that over the last few years that I've heard Christians either explicitly or in roundabout ways kind of ask these questions. And my lawyer has asked me to read this disclaimer, that the questions I'm about to read, if they are, uh, they look like something you have said or asked before, any resemblance is purely coincidental, okay? I've heard people, Christians, ask, how can you be a Christian and vote for Joe Biden? How can you be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump? How can you be a Christian and not wear a mask? How can you be a Christian and support Black Lives Matter? How can you be a Christian and not support Black Lives Matter? How can you be a Christian and fill in the blank? And there are these tensions, these things, those are kind of like political and those big issues that can wrap us up and we feel like that's the problem that we have to solve. But then they get a lot more narrow as well. And there are are, these are uh, ways that differing interests have manifested themselves over the last couple of years. But again, there are plenty of disagreements that can spring up in the life of a local church that can cause division. Within Scripture and uh, practiced in churches, we see uh, the idea of speaking in tongues, the role of women in leadership positions, uh, involvement and inclusion of uh, LGBTQ people in church. How literally do we read the Bible? Uh, Factions over which pastor you prefer preaching. The color of the walls in the classrooms, the volume of music during worship. All of these things are things that can cause 
divisions. Some we can look at and say, well, I understand why they would cause divisions, and we can look at others and say, I don't know why they would. But I feel like everything I just mentioned has probably caused some sort of division in a church somewhere. So these disagreements are vast, but they are not new. Divisions and quarreling over all sorts of issues is not a new phenomenon. It's not something that the American church has created over the last few years. These have existed for as long as and longer than the church has existed. And I would say that quarreling or fighting and divisions were the most pressing issue to the early church. That if you read through Acts and then the epistles, uh, the letters that follow, Those who wrote them, the apostles, saw potential fights and divisions as an existential threat to the body of Christ, that it was the biggest threat to the church. Whether the letter is a long letter, like 1 Corinthians, or it's short, like the book of Philemon, the topic of quarreling is addressed. Whether the church is doing well, like Philippians, or doing poorly, like in Galatians, then divisions is addressed. Whether the tone of the letter is more about doctrine, like the letter of Romans, or it's more personal, like 2 Timothy, divisions is addressed. So clearly, the New Testament authors viewed this type of fighting as a life-threatening virus to the body of Christ, something that needed to be destroyed and extracted. But we aren't left without a remedy. It's not just Paul and New Testament writers saying, don't fight, please, and then walking away. They actually give us ways to do that, and I think one of the ways uh, is mapped out for us in Romans chapter 14. I want to pull out four principles that, when applied and followed, will help us to avoid quarreling. It won't make us agree on everything, but I think if we follow these principles, then it can help us to deal with personal conflicts. And so uh, I'm going to, I trust you guys and your attention span, so I'm going to read all of Romans 14, and then we'll pull out some principles. So Romans 14, starting in verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand." One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, Let us stop passing judgment on one another. 
Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but is but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. All right, easy, right? We got all that? So... Uh, there's a lot there, and what Paul is talking about might, why are we talking about food? Why are we talking about eating meat? Uh, that, maybe there are some vegetarians or vegans here, uh, but you're not mad at those of us who eat meat. The issues that Paul brings up in these verses, eating meat sacrificed to idols, and uh, in verse 5, one person considers one day more sacred than the other. So he's talking about Sabbath. Those issues to us today feel like those are secondary issues. Why would a church fight over those? That's kind of like the volume of music during worship. I bet people care and get bent out of shape, but like why? Why just sit further back or further up or in the hall or something? We don't have to fight about that, right? And so uh, we can look at these issues and feel like the same thing. But these weren't secondary issues to the first century church. These weren't Christians as we think of Christians. These were Jewish people who followed Christ. And so what they ate was of utmost importance. Their days and holidays, their, the Sabbath was of utmost importance. And so these are first category issues for them. And so we can fill in the blank with whatever we want to put into these issues. But the first principle that I want to take actually comes right from the first verse. Here, Paul introduces us to a category of issues called disputable matters. So apparently some matters, some issues are disputable and some are not. We know that not everything can fall into this category. Paul doesn't mean to say don't quarrel over anything because everything is up for grabs. We, everything is disputable. And if you're a good enough uh, lawyer or justifier, then you can make anything sound like it's right. That's not what Paul is saying. We know that Paul is not afraid to speak in absolutes, that there are some things that we should never do, uh, things that are always yeah, Paul speaks about moral absolutes, things that are always morally wrong or always morally right. He tells churches to abstain from evil, witchcraft, jealousy, sexual immorality, etc. So these are behaviors that are absolutely wrong. They're not up for dispute. We also know that Paul spends much of his letters addressing theological or doctrinal issues that aren't up for grabs. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus is not a disputable matter. Paul says anyone who says that Christ did not raise is not from God. 
So there are issues that are not up for debate. They are absolutes. Then there are matters that may be a matter of preference, but no one should have a strong conviction over them. Paul addresses this in his writings to Corinth. They were arguing over who baptized them. Some say that they are from Apollos, others from Paul, some Cephas, some others still say that I'm of Jesus. And Paul says, what difference does it make? Is, that's the Dave Hallahan version of what Paul says to them in Corinth. What does it matter if I baptized you or Apollos did or Peter did? It doesn't matter. We are all one and with Christ. So you may prefer one of us over the other, and good for you. Then download Peter's podcast and don't listen to mine. That's fine. But it's not something that we should fight about. It's simply a matter of preference. But here, Paul is not talking about moral absolutes, and he's not talking about matters of preference. He says, he introduces this kind of third category, disputable matters, which we will soon see are matters that are important and ones that we should intentionally develop personal convictions around them, but we shouldn't fight over those who have different convictions than we do. So the first principle is to distinguish between personal convictions, moral absolutes, and matters of taste. That when we disagree with someone, we should figure out what category of disagreement is this. Is it just your preference is different than mine? and we should move on, and this isn't worth talking about anymore? Is it a moral absolute where this is kind of a a line in the sand that as Christians over thousands of years, we have said this is what counts as Orthodox Christianity? And so now, if you disagree, then okay, but we're on different sides of the fence here, and I, I can't move from that. Or is it this idea of disputable matters? When you find yourself in a disagreement with someone, slow down, and evaluate. What category of disagreement do we have here? And once we do that, I think Paul has some more for us to say. So in Romans 14.1, he says, accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. A quick aside about weak faith there. I think when we think of weak and strong, we think of better or worse. And I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. That someone who has weak faith, it's not that they are lesser than. He's not talking about saving faith, that their faith may not be strong enough to save them. Paul's talking about their, uh, their conscience, their conscience, that a weak faith is someone who, given a particular issue, is hypersensitive to that particular issue. Someone with a strong faith, they understand uh, differently their freedom in Christ, and so a certain issue doesn't kind of prick at their conscience, whether it's here, meat sacrifice to idols, or when you observe Sabbath, or maybe it's drinking alcohol. Maybe it's the type of language that we use. Um, These are issues that each one of us, probably in some areas, we would have a weak faith, that we are sensitive to that, that we won't watch R-rated movies because that does something to our conscience. But there's others who have a stronger faith in that area, and so they're able to watch that and it not affect them negatively. And so Paul isn't, it's not good or bad faith, it's weak or strong faith. A weak is someone who is sensitive to a particular issue, and someone who's strong, uh, a strong faith is someone who feels like they've got that under control. So the first principle is distinguish between 
personal convictions, and moral absolutes and matters of taste. Principle two also comes from the first verse. Do not quarrel without quarreling over these disputable matters. And it's interesting that in the NIV, anyway, Paul uh, introduces something called disputable matters and then says, don't dispute them. Don't fight over them. And I think Paul expects there to be conversations about these disputable matters. But that is different than fighting over them. That we can discuss disputable matters in a way that is civil, that is loving, that is uh, humble, and that is willing to hear and learn from the other person. And that conversation is different than quarreling, than fighting, than creating factions. Paul is saying that there are issues with enough room for believers to come to two different conclusions without feeling the need to reconcile these ideas together. Paul is not saying that all opinions are equally valid. Look at Romans 14, 14. So Paul is talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And in verse 14, he says, I am convinced being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Paul, under authority of the Holy Spirit, is writing this, and he says, I'm fully convinced. A lot of times when Paul is fully convinced, he doesn't say, but, you know, feel free to disagree. He says, this is the right thing. But here he says, I'm fully convinced, but this isn't something that you, you don't have to follow my example. You need to be convinced in your own mind. So Paul isn't saying that everything is equally valid and everything can fall. He seems to think that there is a right answer to this question. But it's okay with this question if you disagree with him. The, the issue at hand for Paul and the church is, again, meat sacrificed to idols. And he says nothing is unclean. And he's fully convinced and persuaded of that in Jesus Christ. But he doesn't tell everyone to get on board or get out. He says that this is an issue where he can make room for others. Paul is sure not to quarrel over a disputable matter. He doesn't say, how can you be a Christian and eat meat sacrificed to an idol? He also doesn't say, how can you be a Christian and think that idols are real and have power and therefore you're afraid to eat meat? Paul doesn't draw that line in the sand. Paul makes room for a difference of opinion. This is a disputable matter. So again, Paul isn't saying that these matters are of no significance. He understands why people would get up in arms about this. But he's saying, do not fight over these disputable matters. This is more this issue here that Paul's talking about, meat sacrifice to idols, and so many of the other things that we dispute over are more important than, say, our favorite flavor of ice cream. But they are so less important than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so principle one was distinguished between personal convictions and moral absolutes from matters of taste. Principle two is do not quarrel. And then principle three that I want to pull out from here is sprinkled all throughout this chapter. And it's to be fully convinced in your own mind. That Paul's advice is don't fight over this, but instead be fully convinced in your own mind. So Romans 14 verse 5. One per person considers one day sacred, more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. 
Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Romans 14, 12. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And then verse 14, which we just read. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded, that nothing is unclean, but if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. And then in verse 23, at the end uh, of that, he says, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. And so Paul is encouraging us, when these disputable matters come up, when you realize there's something that you have a deep conviction about and you recognize you bump into someone who feels the complete opposite as you, don't rush to, well, we got to fight this out. We got to call Pastor Mark and see whose side he's on. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to create divisions or start fight. We're supposed to be fully convinced in our own minds. And so maybe you thought, well, everyone thinks this, and then you realize that you don't. Slow down. Look into the topic. Talk to the person who disagrees with you. How did you come to this conclusion? Have you thought about this? Have you read this? Have you looked at this? Allow them to ask you the same questions, to revisit this topic, and then be fully convinced in your own mind. Paul gives us why, why, why shouldn't we fight it out? Aren't these, don't these issues matter? These issues affect real people, and so we need to make sure that everybody is on the same page. Paul says, at the end of the day, no, that there are some issues that it's okay for us to disagree with one another. And the reason why is because every one of us will give an account before God. That Paul says, uh, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, a servant stands or falls. And they will stand before the Lord and have to give account for themselves. Who am I to judge you? I'm not your master. You belong to Jesus. Who are you to judge me? I don't belong to you. I belong to Jesus. And so at the end of the day, when it comes to my personal convictions, I'm going to have to give an account to Jesus. And so I don't have to be upset with you that you disagree. I have to give that account before God, and you have to do the same. These disputable matters aren't things that can be glossed over with an ah, who cares? Paul makes it clear that the reason we do not judge one another is because, not because it doesn't matter, but because God is the one who judges. Because we will answer before him. And so I don't have to judge you. That is God's job. Paul is challenging us to have deep personal convictions and then allow others to do the same. And so our stances should be personal, meaning that they are developed internally, that they are applied to ourselves, and then not enforced on other people. Paul's personal conviction is that it is okay to eat any meat. But Paul is not telling the church, you have to follow my personal conviction here. Paul applies it to himself. And it should be, so it should be personal, and it should be a conviction. It should be something that comes from deep work, deliberate action on the subject, not simply a matter of preference, not parroting my favorite pastor or my favorite politician or something I've heard on a YouTube channel or a podcast or I read in a snarky tweet, but it should be something that I've spent a lot of time in prayer and consideration over, and now that is my personal conviction for me. Our goal is not to find what is permissible to the Lord. So it's not, well, let's see what we can get away with. It's to figure out what is pleasing to the Lord. And so the, our last principle comes to us, uh, and it is to avoid judging the strong 
and avoid offending the weak. To those weaker in faith, again, this is those who have a more sensitive conscience, Paul says, do not judge them, as we saw uh, in verses 10 and 12. If you are worried that those who have a different personal conviction than you are getting away with something, they aren't. They will give an account before God. If you are worried that they aren't being pleasing to God, that's not the case either. Paul says in verse 6 that uh, we, that we both will be able to stand before, the God, before God. Those who eat do so for the Lord. Those who abstain do so from the Lord. He seems to think that in these matters of personal conviction, that if we are fully convinced in our own mind, and if we are acting from faith, then even though we disagree, we are both doing something that is pleasing to God. To the strong in faith, Again, those who experience a greater degree of Christian liberty. Paul says not to use your freedom to offend others. Romans 14, 19 to 22. Paul says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That last part, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. That'll preach by itself. But we aren't, those who are strong in their faith, who don't have uh, whatever uh, issue we're dealing with, we don't feel like that is a sin. Our job is not to go around and parade our freedom, but instead it's to be sensitive to others to not put up a stumbling block. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace. Matters of taste should take a backseat to matters of conviction. If I believe that cursing is something that is a matter of preference and holds no actual moral weight, but I'm around others who think that cursing is a very big deal and is a sin, then I shouldn't curse. If you believe that having a glass of wine with dinner is fine, but you're eating with someone who thinks that drinking is wrong, then don't drink. And perhaps this works in the other direction as well. I, I had a, we're at the end here, so quick story. I have a professor in college who uh, all the professors at my school had to, uh, they weren't allowed to drink. It was part of like their job that they weren't allowed to drink alcohol. He went on a trip to Russia, this is a, a while ago, Uh, when it was more favorable to go over to Russia. And there, they had basically what was like a British tea time, only instead of tea, it was vodka. And so he's there on this trip trying to uh, bring the gospel to these people, and they start handing out vodka. And he's like, what am I supposed to do? I'm not allowed to drink. But in that moment, now he says he didn't drink as much as everyone else who was there, but he did partake in some vodka because he didn't want to be rude to those around him. And that struck me as an example. Often we think of it in the one direction. Well, if people don't want me to drink, then I won't. But what do we do when they do? Now we're down a deep rabbit hole of like peer pressure and all of that, but I trust that the Spirit can help you to apply that. The opportunities that we have to practice disagreeing with each other are myriad. There are thousands upon thousands of things that we can disagree. Look around. Every person sitting here is an opportunity to find something you disagree with. But we want to practice disagreeing without dividing. 
We want to be faithful to God's word, and we want to lead with love. We want to do everything within our power to pursue what leads to peace. And so there are ways to do that, but you can't, much like last week when we talked about love, love isn't meaningful unless it's in relationship with one another. We can't disagree well unless we are together. We can't pursue peace unless we are doing it together. And so to practice living intention, to practice unity over uniformity, we have to actually be in relationship with people and with people who disagree with us. And so, again, plenty of ways to do that in your life. Here in the life of the church, there are ways to do that. Wednesday nights are starting back up, like Mark said. On September 7th, uh, we're going to spend three weeks talking about foundational beliefs that when you don't have that foundation, uh, we can be shaken by the way the world talks to us about those things. But then after that, we're going to start a six-week run looking at sexuality, a very contested topic, certainly in our world, but also within our church where we might have different approaches and different thoughts about that. Come to those weeks and practice being in the midst of tension, (laughs) of these heavy topics that are hard to talk about, but we're going to practice doing that together. And like I talked about last week, I think small groups are a great way to do that. To be in a group of, whatever, 8 to 14 people where all sorts of topics come up, where you will inevitably disagree with one another and practice slowing down and disagreeing well with one another. There are informal ways to do this as well, to go and get coffee with someone. Just see how they're doing. Talk about what's going on in the world, and I bet you'll bump into some stuff that you could quarrel over. But practice loving one another instead. Be a part of each other's lives enough, and certainly you will run into opportunities to disagree. But church, we need to do better than the world is doing when it comes to disagreeing with one another. We need to recognize that there are things that we can't move on. I can still love you if you disagree with me about the resurrection of Jesus, but I can't move on that. I can't make room in Christianity, in following Jesus, if that's not something that you hold to. But there are plenty of things that are disputable matters that I have deep personal convictions about, but you don't have to share them. And I can make room for you here. And hopefully you can make room for me here as well. And so I encourage you to take a step in that direction today. And one really easy way to do that is to head to that back table uh, where Emily is at and look at our small group table. We have three signups for small groups out there. Uh, See if one appeals to you. Join one of those. Uh, Grab the flyer. Take it home. Start your own small group. But these are ways for you to get face-to-face with people and to practice loving one another, to practice accepting those whose faith is maybe weaker than yours or stronger than yours, but not fighting over these disputable matters. I think if the church... The better the church does this, the greater our impact will be. That in a time in America where our polarization and our our desire to fight with one another and our demand of you have to agree with me, where that's the way of the world in which we live, when we can start to make room for people that we disagree with, I think the world will take notice. Some people will hate it. Some people will love it. But they'll take notice. And so we can practice that together. We can practice that here. So, Lord... We ask that you would stir in us a desire to love one another, 
to disagree well, to not avoid the tensions that are here. It's not that they will inevitably come. It's that these tensions are here now. Help us to bravely step into them. Help us to step into them the way that you have called us to do. Not with our weapons of arguments and intellect, but instead with a humility and a love that we would die to ourselves and our own desires and that we would hear from others and that your spirit would do a work in us that would bring us together, that we would be an example of unity, not uniformity. Lord, that is a work that only your spirit can do. And so we trust you to start doing that work in us even right now in this moment. So in your name we pray, amen.